This is Office Hours, the show for sharing experiences and stories in security, risk management, compliance, and audit. Brought to you by Galvanize. Now, here's your host, Dan Zitting. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Office Hours. As always, I'm Dan Zitting, Chief Product and Strategy Officer at Galvanize. And again, this week, I have a returning special guest from our last session, Mr. Dan Clark, with uh, some Q&A on the GRIP model and other topics from our last session. But before we get started on that, Dan, thanks for the last conversation. We've gotten some great feedback. Hope you enjoyed it as well. I loved it. I, I, I really enjoy the questions. I enjoy talking about making audit a relevant, uh, not making it relevant, but keeping it relevant and hopefully helping auditors find ways to be successful individually in his teams. Uh, we yeah. need good auditors and there's a lot of them out there. So I support them and will always support them, which is hard <laughs> for me to say because I didn't start as an auditor, but I do. I, lo- I love the industry and I love what we can do. Yeah, that's great. And our, our whole last session was on uh, internal audit and in particular making audit, like you said, relevant, but but most importantly, responsive to the new normal we're in, given the crazy set of risk events we've all been through in the in the prior year. Um, but in particular, we talked about your, your model to get a grip, G-R-I-P, for internal audit in the new normal. Largely this time, I want to do some Q&A, but just in case anybody missed the last episode, Dan, would you mind just summarizing in a couple of minutes your model for getting a grip in, in internal audit? And of course, for a more uh, more thorough discussion, I recommend going back and, and taking the prior episode as well. Sure. Uh, basically, GRIP is, is a model that we came up with to kind of help auditors get to that next level uh, of auditing to be more engaged with their clients. And it it, it entails four different components that some of us look at, but maybe didn't look at it to the degree that we could. The G is for governance. We really want to understand how organizations are governed. And by that, we mean, how do they create the law, enact the law, and make sure that the law is behaving the way that it should be? So it's the same thing as you do in a, in a country or in a city or in a county, you would do in an organization, but we just change it a little bit. The R is for response, because we learned that organizations that are going to be number one are those that can respond to crises better than predicting because we don't know many companies that actually predict well. Uh, So response is kind of going to be a differentiator and we as auditors should understand what a response model looks like and how that works. Intelligence has been proving ground number one for the importance of response. Absolutely. And then intelligence is not just using data, but being able to understand data and the many indicators that contribute to our interpretation of what it's telling us. So we talk about that in the model. And the last one is profiling, which is all about why do people do what they do? It's now why do organizations make the decisions that they make? And that's an important aspect to know when you're auditing because motivation drives 90% of behavior. And once we understand motivation, we can better understand what our organization is doing and why they're doing it. And then we can help them ensure that they're doing the right things for the right reasons. So I really like your model, Dan, just because I think it so succinctly sums up so many of the forward opportunities in, in internal audit that I've, I've seen myself. 
um, governance, response, intelligence, profiling. I think it's a great model. And of course, the outcome of, of your career, having worked as starting as a credit risk manager all the way up through your time as a chief audit executive across a number of particular financial services institutions. What we're going to do now is a little bit of a, a Q&A from feedback we got on the model in our, in our prior discussion. So I'm just going to kick it right off with right off the top. Okay. Um, we had a question that was, how will the GRIP approach impact ERM frameworks? and the ERM areas that fall under regulatory requirements? That's a good question. Uh, the, the GRIP model is, is a, a great model for risk management. And, and the reason I say that is because it comes from a basis of risk management, not really from audit. It's, it's adapted uh, to the audit uh, industry. If you look at governance, which is a, a key component of what COSO talks about when we're talking about enterprise risk management, or ERM, governance is a key component to an ERM process. So there's a natural fit right there for ERM. For auditors to be able to understand governance processes and audit that is a natural alignment between audit and ERM, which should occur anyway. And that's what regulators are, are looking at. If you get to the response and looking at response, Part of risk management is not only recognition of a risk event, but how quickly an organization can mitigate the potential negative impacts of that risk event, which is, i.e., response. So response aligns perfectly with enterprise risk management. The intelligence, again, a perfect alignment with ERM because you need to have data and understand what the data is telling you from four or five or six different perspectives to be a very efficient risk manager. It's not always one data element that drives your analysis. Therefore, that fits. And then profiling is a new caveat that doesn't align perfectly to ERM, but I would argue that ERM should be understanding why management makes the risk decisions it makes linked to its appetite and risk tolerances why do they have that appetite and tolerance will give you an added flavor of what you should do as a risk manager to manage that. So I see it working very, very well. The caveat is regulatory influence and what regulators expect. And I'll be honest with you, regulators expect us to do our jobs really well. I would be really surprised if they had any problems with the GRIP model because the GRIP model talks a lot about what they look at. They look at infrastructure and governance. They look at the data and the models used and the stress testing and all of that to get you intelligence. They look at how organizations respond to environmental uh, impacts, internal and external. And they certainly want to know why the organization does what it does. So the model aligns itself to a lot of different perspectives. But it's a, to me, it's a very concise look at what we can do in audit to be better at contributing and getting to the point of being a trusted advisor. One of the things we talked about uh, quite a bit last time was independent, not isolated, and, and internal audit as a trusted advisor. You were a part of some really large financial institutions, the type that almost certainly had dedicated enterprise risk management teams. I'd be interested if you could characterize a little bit just your perspective on audit and this approach in an environment where a mature financial services environment where you are working in partnership with an enterprise risk management team 
versus perhaps either smaller organizations or in particular ones that are less mature in risk management than what financial services are, where there is no enterprise risk management team, then what do you see? How do you see audit's role as different? Oh, that's a good question. And it's very appropriate because I've worked at institutions that have had the formal ERM process. And I worked at an institution that had an not that formal process. It had its own process. The difference being the bank I worked for, uh, Washington Trust, did not have a risk manager per se. They had a risk committee. And they had owners of individual risk that got together monthly and they would discuss risk and they would make the risk decisions for the institution. Citigroup had an ERM committee and they had a risk manager and they would have the managers manage the risk. So there's two different models out there and then there's variations on a theme. So there's several, but those are the two key models. You have an inter- a risk manager or you have a committee. Mm-hmm. I really like the committee process because I saw a lot of benefits to that. And from an audit perspective, I was on the committee. So I got to add my perspectives from the work that we did and from the observations that we had seen. One of the benefits I had at Washington Trust was that they actually did like my experience that I had at other institutions and they found value in some of that experience that could be translated to their situations. The relationship at Citigroup with the ERM team was not as cohesive as it was at Washington Trust because I wasn't part of the team. I was right. an outsider sitting in perceived on as, the team. Perceived as the cop, a, a little bit of that as opposed to the, yep. yeah. But when we got into it, what I worked with was the individual risk manager to let him and I have a personal relationship that then translated to ERM audit relationship. And so the relationships that you generate personally have a real contributory value in the team relationship. If I had a good relationship with the risk manager, we had a great, great uh, relationship as teams. Let me give you an example. I was building in, in Banamex in Mexico. They had an organization that had risk managers, a credit risk manager, a compliance risk manager, et cetera. Uh, I was trying to build a relationship with the compliance risk manager. So I set up a meeting where he and I could sit down and chat and I could explain what we're going to do, how we're going to do it and all the other stuff and see what we could do for him and his team. Unbeknownst to me, when I set up the meeting, I thought it would be him and I talking. I got to the meeting and there was his whole staff there. And I felt like I was going to be, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. uh, And all these people were going to criticize and argue. And that's what they started out doing. Audits this, audits that, audit never did anything, blah, blah, blah. By the end of the meeting, which was a two-hour meeting, we had got well beyond that. And we'd actually had laid the foundation for a relationship, a personal relationship of 10 to 1, 10 of them to 1 of me. They realized I wasn't going away, and they also realized I wasn't part of the old school, but we ended up having the start of a good relationship that matured into a very productive relationship. So on the ERM piece of it, Dan, I would say when there's a formal process, the one-on-one relationships can drive a group relationship. And on the other, where there's not the formal risk manager and the ownership of risk, and there's more of a shared responsibility, it works out a lot better, a lot easier for internal audit to have influence. It just is, it's an easier process. Yeah, that's great. The other piece that you touched on there, thank you for that one. I wanted to come back 
to is I liked your comment on the regulator. I so often hear that we have to do X because of the regulator, or in the case you were given there, you were talking about the the regulator requiring a, a look at ERM and that sort of thing. But even in more narrow examples, I constantly hear, oh, we have to test controls for socks this way because our auditor says that that's what the PCAOB makes them do. It's constantly this kind of blame, blame, blame the regulator. And I heard you say some words that were, um, mostly the regulator wants us to do a great job of doing our job, <laughs> mm-hmm. something to that effect. And I find that if you're doing the right thing, and if the the grip model is this forward evolution and an impactful change, I am of the belief that you can make those changes without it impacting how you're evaluated by the regulator. And in fact, probably has a positive impact. You just have to be able to talk to the regulators about why and why things are better. And I just was interested if you had any other commentary or experience there on regulator as, you know, looking at primarily looking for you to do the right things and doing your job versus regulator coming in with their checklist and you have to do something stupid because the regulator said so. Does that well, it's, question yeah, make sense? Yeah, it does. That, that's a, a great question. I When my maturity with regulators, I went from being the, I hate regulators to they actually have value. And it took me a while to get there because I had a misconception. And my misconception was that regulators tell you what to do and they don't. Regulators have guidance that is out there that we can read at any point in time. Uh, when they come into an institution, whether it's healthcare or financial services, there's guidance out there that we should be looking at and adhering to anyway. But ultimately what regulators want is for the organizations to be run in a safe and sound manner. And what they want of an internal audit function is to make sure that the internal audit function is helping the business run their organization in a safe and sound manner regardless of what your organization is. So the more that we can do to ensure that they are doing that, the better off we are. Everything in the GRIP model helps us do the right thing. And if we're doing the right thing, then we should be able to stand up to any regulator saying, this is what we're doing, why we're doing it, and this is how it's helping us. And they're going to say, you know, that's a good job. Thank you very much. I like that you're doing that. When we, I was at GE Capital, Dan, we had we became a SIFI, a significant financial institution, and became regulated by the New York FRB. And they actually had people embedded with the company there. And I had a relationship with the auditor, the regulator who was responsible for internal audit because I was the director of operations. And he and I used to have good conversations, theoretical conversations, and then how we applied things to our process. He took away several of our things, our processes as best practices because we could debate them. And Mm -hmm. he actually told his bosses, hey, this is really a good process that they're doing an audit. We ought to share this with other people. So they want us to do things creative and different and better because it makes their job a lot easier if we're doing the right thing. And that's what I learned over time, that if we do what we're supposed to do, we should not fear regulators. We should actually have allies in what they are and what they can provide us. And some of them are extremely smart individuals, have a great amount of experience and wonderful perspectives. So I, I'm high on regulators, especially the good ones. Yeah, I would agree. And I and just kind of that general notion summed up of oftentimes if you're running a really good business, compliance is kind of a byproduct. 
Okay, I want to move on to another question about the GRIP model we got. This question was, how could the GRIP model be utilized in auditing an organization's ethics and culture? I'm always interested in the idea of trying to audit culture. Um, interested on your thoughts, Dan. Actually, I, I do a complete webinar on auditing culture, and it's a tough thing to audit. Yeah. Um, it really is because it gets into, it gets into psychology, and... We are not psychologists. Some of us may have had degrees in psychology before we got into uh, auditing. But if we did, I'd question why are we in auditing if we have a psychology degree. Um, but we are. So the grip model and ethics, when we look at governance, and, and we talk about governance and intelligence, those are the two pieces that really talk about culture and ethics. Governance is not just the infrastructure of how we do things or how something is implemented, or how we administer our rules and regulations. But governance talks about why did we create the policies that we created? Why are we making the strategic decisions that we make? And when we get to the why, we get to the culture. For example, if we have a culture that's customer-centric, and I worked in one organization that was that way, there's nothing wrong with being customer-centric. The challenges for auditors, and this is where the GRIP model comes into to being, is when we look at governance, we're going to understand that the reason the management makes a decision is because they want to make sure their customer is happy, okay? And once you understand that that's the reason why they make the decision, you can audit the lack of controls over those decisions pretty easy. If you have a customer organization that is focused on the bottom line and making sure it's profitable and that your customer, yes, we want to keep customers, but everything they say is not the gospel, then you're going to have a different culture and your grip model is still going to look, you look at governance, you're going to say, okay, customer has said they want this, but we're not giving them that. We understand why we're not doing it. We're looking at the profitability, et cetera. So you're looking at things differently. It's all about why people make decisions that they do. And that gets to the ethics. Why are people ethical? Why are they not? I always have argued with executives when they say we don't have ethic problems because we hire good people. And I appreciate that we hire good people and I tell them that, and I've said that in a couple of places, I'm glad you hire good people, but when a certain situation happens, good people no longer are good. So what are you doing to make sure that you have ethical behavior in your organization? What kinds of controls do you have in place to reinforce the behavior that you want? And auditors can look at how people are rewarded and what behavior is reinforced very easily. And that's what we should be looking at as auditors when it comes to ethics and culture. I really like that answer too. Thanks, Dan. The, I want to take two questions here. And these I call bailout questions <laughs> because I think they're well-intended questions. I, I really do. Um, so I don't mean to challenge the listener's perspective here too much or, or, or call them out too much, but I do see them all the time and I see them used authentically, but perhaps behind the scenes as a little bit of a way to bail out of saying, we are going to change or we're going to evolve to these, to these new models. So in the context of the GRIP model, governance, response, intelligence, profile, the first of these two questions is, is there a minimum size of company for putting these ideas into practice? I personally think that probably a little bit of the unread question there is we're the sort of organization that where audit is a small team, call it three, five, whatever it is, sorts of people. We really can't do all of these things. Is it possible to do all of these things? Look at governance, 
evaluate risk response, gather data and intelligence, et cetera. And I'll just mention that the second question there on my list of bailout questions is how can we change the perspective of the board of audit as a spender or a cost center, which I think the unread question there is, can I do these things when I have no budget? So my team is too small. Maybe I'm overreading those questions, but the cynic in me tends to read them as my team is too small. I have no budget. Therefore, I can't adopt these things. I just have to keep my head above water. Am I being overly critical, number one? And number two, how do you look at evaluating that, the minimum size company, minimum size team and perspective on budget and and the cost center nature of uh, audit? Actually, I I like the questions. And and I, I think I have a sense of where they're coming from. And I used to be very in the same boat that sometimes we ask questions to confirm that we're not going to do something. So let me mm-hmm. give you the answer that's the right answer for these questions because they're both very they're v- both very good questions. The GRIP model is a personal model. It's not an organizational model. Everything we talk about in GRIP is you can do individually. Dan, you can do the GRIP model for yourself. You can understand governance better. You can understand, you can use data in an intelligent manner. You can interpret it differently. You can do profiling. You can understand the whys. It doesn't have to be something that is done for an organization. If everybody in the organization did it, then you'd have an organization that does it. If you want your organization to do it, then you're going to share it with everybody, but it's still an individual commitment to being better auditor than what you were before. And it doesn't cost you anything to do that. So the cost factor is not a big play. What the value is of this model is that you can apply it to the individual person, i.e., if you want to be a superstar auditor, and I, I think you recall, uh, in fact, you guys even donated my book to one of our conferences, Dare to be Different, uh, an Auditor's Personal Guide to Excellence, is all about making an auditor be independently separate from his team being the best auditor he can be, the GRIP model allows you to be the best auditor you can be. It also is very easy to adapt as a team focus to be a team that can do more. To convince the board of directors, all you have to do is practice what we talk about. If you start talking about governance and you show the weaknesses in governance or the strength of governance, even if you do a governance review and you tell the board, our governance process is really, really good, and compared to the industry, it's at the top 5%, that gives the board a sense of confidence that you guys are looking at the right stuff and you're communicating to them the right messages. And if you find weaknesses, certainly it's going to be helpful. Everything in the GRIP model is conducive to personal growth, to team growth, and to education and comfort of shareholders and stakeholders of your organization because you're doing something that other people haven't really done to the degree that they have. I would love to sit in a meeting where the chief auditor, and I've been in those meetings, where the chief auditor has said, I don't agree with the strategic decision the bank has made, and let me tell you why. We did a strategic review. Here's what we came up with. I think you need to ask them why they made that decision. And that's when you are adding value. That's when you are really doing your job as an auditor. And that's what we should aspire to. That's a great characterization. And reeling your your answer back a little bit there, I, I love the point about it's a personal model, a team model, and perhaps a departmental model. But to your point, I mean, you worked for a very large organization in Citigroup, certainly not small, but comparatively to Citigroup, a a relatively small bank in in Washington Trust. And I hear what you're saying is 
equal equal applicability between the two. Absolutely, I could. I looked at the same stuff in both institutions. The difference being the impact and the communication style, because each organization had a different culture. And I tell you, I really loved Citigroup. I grew up Citigroup. I'm a, I am a city banker. Okay, that's <laughs> it. The first job I had after Citibank, I got my ass fired because I was too much a city banker. Okay, so I learned from that. But I loved Washington Trust because it was congenial. It was collaborative. It was, uh, there weren't as many political battles that you had to have that you have in a large organization like GE or Citigroup. And there's nothing wrong with those battles. I mean, that's just the culture. But it was so rewarding to see an organization that would actually listen and talk and communicate before some decisions were made rather than making decisions and having the communication afterwards. Although I grew up that way, so I enjoyed that too. It's just, it's <laughs> different cultures. Uh, but very different. But but the GRIP model applies to both. And again, if people would look at it personally, if we had every auditor do these four things differently, eventually audit would be much more relevant and providing a lot more value across the board. That's a great one. So I want to drill in now. The next category of questions I think are largely around the eye. It's probably not shocking given uh, given that it's a, a galvanized audience, but a number of questions were in the category of intelligence, data analytics, these sorts of things. And so I want to drill down there a little bit. And the first one I want to ask is, to be honest, it, I, I feel like I've been answering, at least you know, in my career, I've been answering this question for f- some 15 years now. But what are the first steps IA can do to add value with analytics, number one? And then in particular, I think, maybe narrowing that in to when the follow-on question there being doing so when perhaps underlying data is questionable to begin with. I think you're in a particularly interesting spot to give some some shared experience on this, Dan, given that, as we talked about last time, coming from a credit risk background where you use a ton of data, and then again, considering the size and resources of a, a Citigroup or a GE Capital to the resources and analytical capability of a, of a Washington Trust Bank. Where do you start with data in internal audit? And then uh, following on that, what happens when underlying data is no good? Ooh, a lot of, lot of stuff in those two questions. Let's start about where do you do as an auditor to start? And I'm going to approach that from two, a couple different perspectives. First of all, as an auditor who, let's say you're new to data analytics and whatnot, the first thing you want to do is educate yourself on what is data analytics. Uh, and you want to take some courses. You want to find out from all sorts of people how they use data. And I would say this, if you're in audit in a financial service industry, look outside financial services to how people are looking at data. Uh, look at a, economists. They look at data very differently than no so than no soldiers. I'm sorry, that's my Spanish word for us. Um, it, you know, after living in Mexico for four years, they still some words that just pop out when I'm talking. Um, look at insurance companies and how they look at data. Look at uh, manufacturing companies and how they look at data. Uh, educate yourself on how different people see value in data. And then look inside your organization to what data is available and what data you need and how it links to processes. So there's a, a growth period that I'm going to say is going to take you a good 12 months to really get into a position where you can use data in your team to a valuable perspective, not just to a 
task-oriented perspective because a lot of auditors do task-oriented data analysis. We do mm -hmm. our retrievals, we do our uh, splits, we do our uh, we look at what the results are and then we write something up, but we don't interpret the data. We don't analyze the data. So to analyze data, you need to be trained. So that's the first thing I would do. Look outside to see who's using data, how they're using it, then educate myself on how to do it myself, and then bring it in-house. Now, there's always going to be questions about the integrity of data, and there's going to be questions about the use of data within our organizations. What I would do in, a, in an organizational way, i.e. internal audit for my institution, I would do some consultative reviews and I would do two of those right off the bat. One is a data risk management audit. How is the organization managing data? And then the second one is going to be a data integrity consultative review. How do I know that the data that we have in our warehouse has integrity? And how do I know that the reporting mechanisms and all the reporting we do with that data has integrity? So I do two separate audits. They'd be consultative in nature, so there'd be no rating, but it would give me a great opportunity to educate the business about principles over data risk management, and then also to ensure that data has integrity. Once I've done those two audits, I'm more comfortable with what needs to be done to get my organization to a level where I can rely on data, or I am very comfortable that I can rely on data. So now how do I get access to the data that I need so that I can actually rely on it? Yeah, you went right where I, I often do on this one. And I often hear, well, the challenge is, is we have bad data, so it's very difficult to do analytics. Well, you found something there in and of itself. To, to your point about doing a a data governance, a data risk management review first, I think that's really important to get to the bottom of. If you've got bad data, we've, we probably have a bigger problem than the one you were trying to, um, the, than you were trying to use the, the data to analyze in the first place. But I like what you said about the, the, the training there. And I take that one step further and ask whether big bank environment or, or, or small organization environment how did, as a leader, how did you work to maximize or proliferate the skills? Did you expect all auditors to get to some certain level of proficiency in data? Did you have a, a center of excellence where you had the, the data geeks as a central resource that all the different audit teams out in the field could use? What kind of approach do you like in terms of building up the collective skills as opposed to the, end of the collective skills of the team uh, in addition to the individual skills of the auditors? The interesting thing is that in smaller institutions, you don't have the luxury of having a, a separate team that does data. At GE Capital, mm -hmm. we actually had a data analytics team that mm -hmm. knew how to slice. And we are, our line of business auditors would request information from this data analytics team and they get it to them. I firmly believe that an auditor to be the best auditor needs to have a modicum of understanding of all aspects of what they do. They don't need to be experts in everything because we can't, but they need to be able to do some auditing. They need to be able to do some data analytics. They can't rely on someone else to do it. They need to understand how data has integrity or why it doesn't. They need to understand data management processes. They need to understand how to analyze data. And the reason I say that is because the voice that goes to the business is not that team of data analysts unless you take them with you. 
So you're going to have to argue the point that they give you. And you can't argue the point if you don't know something about the, the information. So I've always encouraged my auditors to have some sort of knowledge around data and data analytics and the ability to interpret what data tells you and the ability to tell the story that data is telling them. Whether they got the data from someone else or themselves, they have to tell the story. And that's at a minimum that they need to know. If I can't get that and I have someone, like when we were GE, we had the data analytics. If it was a complicated analytics with a, a controversial result, I would take the data analyst with me and let them explain it and I would support them. Now, I would make sure they explained it to me first because I mm -hmm. needed to understand it uh, because I have, a, I have an image to project and I need to understand something, but I would take the expert with me at any point in time to explain the expertise. But my auditors need to have a working knowledge at a minimum. And if I was lucky, I would have one or two data geeks who really knew it well, that'd be great. But at a minimum, a working knowledge is always required in my organizations for people to have. Yeah, that's great. And we had a follow-on question to that, which was, what do you think of using a proof of concept model or proof of concept work on data analytics, AI, and robotics to, to demonstrate value? So I like your point there, Dan, about minimum proficiency, I think is important. But do you like this idea of demonstrating value through a POC to, to management to move the program forward? I really like the proof of uh, concept model. I, I like the idea because it helps educate. And, it, and I'll tell you, the, the thing that really is beneficial, I believe, to those kind of situations is it's not an audit with a rating and you're not criticizing somebody for what they've done. What you're doing is you're opening eyes to an alternative way of looking at something. So if an auditor does it the right way and communicates it the right way, it can be an extreme advantage to moving yourselves ahead in the data analytics and access to data model. If you do it as an auditor and say, look, we have this model that we did, we tried this, and this is what it's telling us, it's now an issue, you need to resolve this, that's not going to work. Because proof of concept is not actual fact yet. It's proof of concept. We have mm -hmm. a concept. We think we've proved it. Let's talk about it. And I enjoy talking about those things because I get educated. And the other thing it does for me when I have those conversations, it always leads me to understand the motivation of the other person. And if you remember my model, it's all about why do people do what they do? I really right. understand a lot when they start arguing and supporting their position as to why they support their position. I need to give them that opportunity. And so it sounds kind of nasty and sneaky, but it's really not because we're all human beings and we want to support our beliefs. I just listen. And I can't listen if I've got to give a rating and it's an audit, but I can listen and prove a concept. And I really enjoy listening to other people because I learn from it. I learn to make me better. And I also learn to make my audit process better. Yeah, I really like that. And I'll just build on your answer a little bit. I was intrigued by the, the fact the question asked specifically about data analytics, AI, and robotics. And I think we have a tendency to, to mix a lot, of these, a lot of these concepts. And they are, in, in some respects, fairly different things. I mean, I, I think a lot about, I think of data analytics as, you know, queries to find an answer to something I don't know the answer to today. Whereas robotics are more about using data for purposes of automation. 
every single quarter I go test user access control. I have somebody who goes out and tests a sample of 25 terminated users to see if we have good user access controls. That can be automated with data. That to me is robotics. I'm not looking for, I'm not necessarily looking for new insight. I'm just looking to run something that I've, I regularly have to run. And then AI can, can support in both, uh, both cases where you may not be able to articulate a clear rule around what needs to happen. And so those are complex and important concepts. But I think what's useful about doing, doing proof of concept and maybe separating out those buckets is as an executive and as a team, we can first learn, hey, which of these tools do we want to put into our toolbox? Are we wasting too much time on manual, manual work and we want to add robotics and automation of you know, highly repetitive work? That's one tool I can put in my toolbox. The next tool I can put in my toolbox is analytics, rule-based analytics. Ask questions based on criteria and float the red flags and the exceptions out. Third bucket may be predictions. So using models that can say, we think at a probability of this level, this might happen in the future is kind of a third thing. So I like to do a proof of concept and say, you know, maybe not all of these are important to us right now. And maybe some are more complex than others than what we'd want to take on. But maybe these are toolbox where I can show management or audit committee or just ourselves inside internal audit which tools do we want to have in our toolbox and which ones do we want to mature? Our ability to automate, our ability to query, our ability to predict. These are all things that you can do with data. And I think a proof of concept helps isolate out what each one is and what they might be useful for in the broader scheme of, of plans you're working. I love that. That is so, so good, so concise. And that's just really a practical approach to, to the three different pillars, if you will, of data. It's very, very nicely said, very concisely done. I'm just going to do one more on, on data. Um, this one was specifically around AI. And the question specifically asked, will AI not become a white elephant? Too big a bite for what we can chew. Any thoughts on, on that one, Dan? <laughs> Uh, boy, I mean, how would you how would you answer that question? I <laughs> I, I really don't. I, I you know AI is is being used in some places to uh, limited degrees. I don't know. I I don't think it will ever become a white elephant. I, I I'm not sure what the impact will be. I could envision we have little avatars running around doing stuff. I, <laughs> you know, I I've seen the science fiction movies. And it's amazing how much of the stuff you see in movies that actually comes forth and, and ends up happening. So I don't, I don't have an answer for that. I don't believe in white elephants. I believe that things can be used. We'll see what happens. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like it's a, I, I feel like it's a rapidly evolving set of tools. And sometimes we, we look at it too holistically and say, well, probably going to be a long time until we have artificial intelligence auditors that all take our jobs. But I think in a much more narrow sense, there's some, there's some great opportunities out already. I worked with an organization recently to use machine learning to say based on, it was a good example where they wanted to do an audit of top talent loss. And they, it's not something they'd ever audited before, but they said, Hey, look, it's right in our, right in our 10 K. One of our top risks is the ability to attract and retain top talent it's not something we've ever looked at from an audit perspective. And so as we thought through, how could they do that? One of the things we said is, well, you know, I could do an, a data analytic that said, I want to look at all employees 
and see which ones quit and how that correlates to how much overtime they worked. And there may be a correlation between working overtime and employees leaving, but it may be correlation, not causation, right? Mm -hmm. And so we said, hey, why don't we say, based on everything we know about an employee, perhaps their gender and age, their tenure with the company, whether or not they're working overtime, what time zone they're in, what pay grade they're at, do they get stock options, all these sorts of things, and said, hey, why don't we use a little bit of machine learning to say, let's look at all those factors. We don't know which ones are the most important, but let's look at all those factors and say, which, uh, based on all those factors, which uh, clusters of people based on past folks who have left might be most likely to leave in the future. And we found some really interesting results where you could say the machine can look at this data in a so much more holistic way that it could say, hey, this cluster of employees based on these four or five things seem like higher risk and a place to go to go dig in. And so that was probably a long-winded example, but things like artificial intelligence and machine learning sound unapproachable and complicated and too much to bite off. But back to the proof of concept thing, take some small bites and you might find useful, might find useful tools along the way. Agree. Agree. It's going to be interesting future from that perspective. Last category, uh, Dan, is, um, is just as we, you know, the landscape continues to shift as we emerge from, from the pandemic. And, um, and I suppose lots of questions at this point, whether or not we're emerging or, 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 uh, sinking back down into in some respects, but they got the simple question. What are the top three risks um, internal auditors should should focus on post pandemic and I think that's a hard question to answer, given the diverse nature of organizations. but what stands out to you as as um, top things in a post pandemic world for internal audit hmm. it's an interesting question because i'm not sure i don't i don't look at a post pandemic audit I look at the new normal and the new normal is it actually started about 15, 20 years ago. And I, I strictly Dan Clark's humble opinion. I don't think the pandemic is a pause of something new. I think it's a confirmation of what we should have been doing all along. Audit needs to be able to respond to change. Number one, and it, being the audit, it can't, it hasn't historically had a very good success rate on responding to change timely. So uh, the first thing I would say for people to focus on is can I, as an auditor, can my audit team respond to change? And what does that mean? That means to, can I have new, can I look at new models? Can I use data analytics tools differently? How can, how can I build my relationship management skills with the organization so that I'm integrated more with what's going on? To be able to manage change, I need to know what change is occurring and the impact of it. So I need to be engaged. So I need to change as an auditor. And the, the change management world is the first thing. And it's been there for a while. It's just that COVID-19 has encouraged us to, to do that better. So that's the first thing. Second thing would be the emotional cost of pandemics and what it means to organizations is the second biggest risk because this pandemic is on the heels of the latest financial crisis, which was on the heels of another crisis. So crisis management is Mm -hmm. a way of dealing with things and auditors have to have a crisis management mentality. There's always going to be something. 
So how do I recognize it? How do I respond to it? How can I predict it if I could predict it, et cetera, et cetera. So change management, crisis management. And then the third piece is how do I make sure my team is capable of dealing with those first two? Those are the three things I would focus on if I was in a chief auditor today, because everything else we do normally, routinely, I can go in and audit anything. I, you know, I can go in tomorrow, I could do a walkthrough and, and write an audit report. It's just all of us could do that. But if I can manage those three things, then I know that I'm gonna be around for the long haul and I'll be able to add value. So those to me are the three risks out there which is going to be a different answer than people would have expected. They would expect, well, technology, economic, global. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we can talk about all that, but if you really want to get to the essence of being a successful audit team, crisis management, change management, and having the skills necessary to deal with those first two are what's going to set us apart, I think. Yeah, I think that's really good. And that addresses the the follow-on question, which was how can we evaluate our own response to to COVID-19. I think you, I think you addressed that well, and maybe we'll use it to wrap up on this one, which is amidst all of this, there's, there's some specialized emerging, what the listener here uh, categorized or called specialized emerging issues, things around data privacy, risk of a remote workforce, some of these sorts of things. And they asked, do you think internal auditors should be specialized to address these emerging issues? And I think you're probably getting at it there, Dan, but I don't see this question as issues coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic a lot of different than the age-old question of, of should auditors be experts in audit process or should they be experts in the various issues of the business? But I thought I'd, I'd ask you that one to say, should they be specialized in emerging issues coming out of the pandemic? Um, whether you know new security, uh, new security threats, health and safety, these sorts of things, or is, or is it more about being able to audit that risk response process? You know, it's funny. I'm going to disagree with the the person who wrote the question. The one, the examples they used, remote auditing, etc. Those are not emerging risk. Uh, <laughs> they're not emerging anything because people have been remote auditing for years. Uh, so, but the, the gist of the question is, is very sound. It is, should we be specialized in emerging risk? And I would say no, not in, in the risk per se. I think we need to be specialized in how we audit emerging things. And we, mm-hmm. can, be, we can be experts in recognizing the process of emergence and versus the ex- expertise of, of the status quo. For example, compliance auditors are extremely, extremely talented in understanding what regulations mean and how to apply the regulations because they have a lot of time studying that and understanding it. And it's a, it's a different mindset than someone who is more eclectic and will look at something that's emerging. The reason you don't focus on being an expert on an emerging risk is because an emerging risk does not always emerge. And it doesn't impact people the same way. And once it's emerged, it's no longer an emerging risk. So your expertise has a very limited lifetime or life cycle because it only lasts as long as that risk is emerging. What you want to be an expert at is how do organizations deal with emerging risk? How do they respond to events? If you can become an expert in response to critical events and risk events, you will have longevity in your career. 
If you are an expert in the emerging risk of blood diamonds out of Kenya, that's not a long-term career maker. That's a very short-term career maker. So just change the perspective a tad. Be an expert in ability to recognize, respond, and communicate emerging risk processes, and you will have a very long, long career and a very successful career because we have crisis every other year or every three years. There's a new crisis, and the ability to recognize those, respond to those, and audit those is something that is invaluable. And that's where I would put my focus if I, I was starting out my career. I think that's a great. Uh, I think that's a great note to wrap on. Given I, I think that's exactly what the uh, the grip model you put together is is intended to help people do. So, with that, thank you, Dan, for returning and and answering a few listener questions. And uh, I thought it was a great conversation. We appreciate it so much, and look forward to doing it again in the near future. Thank you, Dan, and thanks for everybody for listening. And if you got questions. Send them to Dan and Dan. We can answer these questions. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Thanks, everybody. Cheers. Thanks for joining us for this week's Office Hours. Make sure to visit wegalvanize.com for free resources to help you deliver better enterprise governance. See you next time. <laughs>